Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, yogis. Perhaps you'll forgive the cheeky title to this week's episode, but I've been thinking about doing this topic for a little while after I had devoted a couple of my weekly yoga classes to this particular topic. And I was inspired because when you're a parent, a lot of your life has to do with managing someone else's poop, thinking about the caliber and quality and frequency of their pooping. And it really sheds light on how pooping well contributes to our health and happiness. And we live in this yoga culture where people put up pictures of themselves doing beautiful yoga asana with their body and often accompanied by calls to action of the importance of practice for our mental and physical health. However, pooping well is going to influence that as well, particularly because many of us are yogis in households where maybe our partners or our children don't practice yoga asana or don't exercise, which is a critical component to pooping well. And so I thought, let's have some real talk. How many conversations in your life have you had that aren't about anything important at all? And sometimes less than important, shallow or unkind. I know that a large component of my teenage years were filled with silly conversations. And so we're having this important, very real conversation because it will actually contribute to our health and happiness. When I was in high school and doing some research on some particular topic that I was studying, I found an article from some foreign aid health workers who were talking about going to places where there were gender-specific cultural practices that led to women having extreme difficulties with their, uh, with their reproductive experiences, with their reproductive health experiences like menstruation, pregnancy, labor, as well as elimination. And they were talking in this article about how you cannot go into places where there are very habituated cultural practices and say, you're doing it wrong, what you're doing is unkind or cruel or biased or whatever. Instead, what you do is you go in and you set up health clinics and you create the conditions for women in these communities to have conversations and find out about quote unquote normal bodily functions And once they do that, they discover that, oh, perhaps it should not take me 20 minutes to fully empty my bladder. And so the change comes from within the community itself, when women realize that some gender-specific cultural practices 
can be very, very detrimental to their health rather than beneficial to their, their health or status in particular, which is perhaps what has been cultivated in that community. I'm sharing that to illuminate that conversation is critical to change. The New York Times included a little article uh, about a week ago, May 24th, in the Sunday edition, about the increasing comfort with discussing all things bowel movements and poop. It reminded me of the poopery YouTube advertisement from a few years back with that perky British lady in the dress saying that no one needs to know that you go. And of course, in with that particular product, you spray uh, a spray that's got essential oils in it. And of course, oil and water don't mix. So it sits on the surface of the water of your toilet bowl. And so when you have a bowel movement, the feces pass through the oil, supposedly eliminating the smell on their way down. I personally have never tried this. But I'm open. It also, though, sounds like you could absolutely just make this yourself and keep it on the ledge in the in the bathroom. But the New York Times article said that they think that one of the things leading the way was when Gmail created their first suite of emojis, they included the pile of poo emoji that we are all very familiar with now uh, from our phones in particular, because it was particularly important to digital communication in Japan. And so they had to include it. Thus, this little image, this little acknowledgement that bowel movements happen entered the North American public consciousness. So back to the reason for the title. I wanted you to listen. I didn't want you to see healthy elimination with Ayurveda and think that maybe there was nothing of relevance there to you. We're going to cover some interesting ground today. But I was inspired because of my dear son, Harvey. A little while ago, he was having not the best day and then not the best evening. And he hadn't had a bowel movement all day, which is unusual for this kid. He's usually pretty relaxed about having bowel movements. So my partner, Alex, came home and we're like, okay, we're having Gramps Day. Let's just have some dinner. Bath time's always good. We'll just get this kid to bed. And it'll be okay. And so at bath time, bath time's very relaxing, right? And warm water, it calms us down, starts to prep us for sleep time. So down-regulating of the nervous system. And my kid poops in his little bathtub. And that's very common. That happens a lot with babies. So, okay, you know, shoot, we get him out. I put him on the bath mat and entertain him while Alex deals with the mess. And then as I'm holding my kid on the bath mat, he poops on the bath mat. (laughs) Okay, that happens. And then we refill the bathtub, put him back in. And he has a third bowel movement into the tub. And so at that point, we called it quits had a little shower for him, and then uh, whisked him off to bed. But for the rest of his bedtime routine, he was happy, happy, happy. And I thought, if yoga asana is critical to 
maintaining our health and wellness to elevating our consciousness, right? By being present in the body, by being aware of where there's movement or stagnation and using yoga and Ayurveda as tools to elevating our wellness. And then ultimately, hopefully in elevating the wellness and the consciousness of the world, then maybe paying attention to how well we go is also important because if everyone who's not pooping as well as Harvey is, if they have responsibilities out there in the world, we need to make sure that they're pooping well because we can't have them making important decisions or leading groups of people or being in conversation if they're as cranky as this guy was when he hadn't had a good poo. Which raises the question, what is a good poo? Apparently, the normal range of bowel movement frequency averages out to one a day of about a pound of feces. So that could be anything from a couple of times a day to once every three days. Apparently, if it's less than once every three days, that qualifies as constipation. And I read from an American site that that means about three bowel movements a week or less qualifies as constipation. From the Ayurvedic lens, we would prefer a bowel movement a day of a long banana-shaped feces that floats in the bowl and only has little odor to it. We want it to be slightly oily. We talk about that a lot in Ayurveda, about something being oily, but not sticky. And how you would define that is the feces still has an, like a slight oiliness to it, so a slight moisture or hold together without it being overly brittle or dry. But in terms of too much stickiness, you have to look at wiping. If you can wipe your skin clean with ease and your poop is slightly oily, then that's the moisture level we're looking for. But if you take a long time to wipe your skin clean after your bowel movements and it you have to really work at it and there's still residual feces left on your skin, then that would be considered overly sticky. Ayurveda is very concerned with the digestion of food and experiences. Remember that Ayurveda says that we consume prana, the vital life force, through all of the senses. So it's not just what we eat. It's the things we look at, the things we touch, listen to, smell. All of these things contribute to digestion and thus all these things can be impacted by digestion. Because again, it's mind-body. There's no such thing as a separation between the two. So digesting well is going to impact the clarity with which you perceive reality. And that's really what we're looking to do through our yogic and Ayurvedic practices. We're looking to see things as they really are. And if we're digesting poorly, then we may not be able to do that optimally. Ayurveda talks about Agni. And if you ever work with an Ayurvedic health counselor or practitioner, 
even if they do not say that this is what they're concerned about or this is what they are working with, it likely has something to do with some of the work that you will do. The word is spelled A-G-N-I. And Agni is typically referred to, especially in the, the pithy Ayurvedic article internet, as metabolism or digestion. It is digestion, but it's more than that. It's got multiple sites in the body and it's governed by multiple dosha or the elements of constitution, which are in themselves represented and made up of elements of nature, which in Ayurveda are earth, fire, water, air, and space. So Agni, the closest thing we have in Western anatomy would be the metabolism. And of course, metabolism has a fiery component to it. So we often think of Pitta as being the dosha we're concerned about when we're concerned about metabolism, because Pitta is that which transforms, right? And of course, you consume things, Pitta transforms them, and then we send out what is not used. In truth, though, Vata, the dosha composed of air and space, governs the nervous system. And there's nothing we can't do without the nervous system, including pooping well. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. Pitta governs the creation and uh, quantity of enzymes and bile that help begin the digestion process in the stomach. And kapha, the dosha of earth and water, helps form the mucus, which protects the intestines and moves food along as it goes through the digestion process. So it's not just pitta, which is an important reminder because I think often when we do little dosha quiz or work with someone who doesn't have a lot of knowledge of Ayurveda, we think, oh, I'm vada, ergo I need to work with vada in particular for balancing. And it's not that that's not true to an extent. It's just, it's only a portion of it. Everyone has all of the elements in their constitution. And so you actually need to think about all three dosha, all five elements, all of these components. I'm very pitakafa and I need to ensure that I don't get vada deranged. And sometimes I need to ground the vada in particular because they all have responsibilities in shaping our experience. I was particularly fascinated about the role of kapha, kapha's creation of mucus in digestion, when I found an article from the Scientific American, and it was about the physics of bowel movements, and a study that looked at the rates at which zoo animals defecated, as well as quantity and whether their feces floated or sank. And it's more interesting than you would think. So herbivores' bowel movements floated and meat-eating animals sank. And that's interesting because uh, meat is a, it's a rajasic food. 
And so, of course, these creatures have a lot of rajasic qualities to them, right? They're typically, they would be aggressive because they would need to hunt and kill their prey. But if we had sinking, heavy, oily bowel movements, there's the potential that we're having overly rajasic diets. So possibly too much meat, uh, too much dairy, not actually processed foods. Processed foods would be considered tamasic or the downward moving, uh, depressed, inert qualities of energy. Anyway, what they found was that everything from elephants, and they compared this all to humans, they actually defecate at about the same rate, even though the volume of bowel movement is, of course, dramatically different. And our digestive systems produce a greater quantity or particular quality of mucus to make sure that we have a bowel movement at a consistent speed because we don't want it to linger in the body. Because of course, as anyone who's had constipation knows, there are some not pleasant consequences that come with that. So you poop at the same rate as an elephant, even though they poop a lot more than you do. Now we've been talking a little bit about what you eat, but what you eat is not the sole basis for what comes out of you. Your feces are actually a combination of leftover matter from the food you've digested, of course, but also bacteria that has died or is no longer necessary, as well as other things that your body has processed and no longer needs, including blood cells. That's where poop gets its brown color from. It's not just that all that broccoli eventually turns brown when it lingers long enough in your system. It's not in there for long enough. Brown is from the blood. Now, how long that material is in your system for matters a great deal to this conversation. Ayurveda says that there are four types of Agni, four types of digestive fire in this particular regard. One of them is Vishima Agni, which is irregular digestion. So if constipation frequently happens or you're not digesting well, we may say that that's Vishima Agni. And that's typically related to Vata Dosha because Vata is that which moves. So it's the air and space Dosha. It's up, down, and variable. Then there's Tikshna Agni, which is typically related to Pitta Dosha, and it's caused by heat. Tikshna means sharp or penetrating. And so sharp penetrating Agni can look like diarrhea. Then there's Manda Agni, which is typically related to metabolic imbalance in Kapha Dosha, and it's typically slow. Then there's Sama Agni, which is the evenness we're looking for. Those of you who practice yoga, particularly with anyone from the Ashtanga tradition, will frequently hear your teacher say, Samastidihi, Samastidihi. And it doesn't mean bringing your hands back to heart center. It means standing in evenness, where we see Sama, S-A-M-A, 
it is evenness. Samastita, he standing in evenness. Samatva, evenness. Sama Agni, even digestion. Hence why we like the consistency of once a day, something that's cyclical and works with the cyclical nature of life. In her book, Gut, the inside story of our body's most underrated organ, Julia Enders says that she doesn't like the definition of constipation as being about frequency, but rather length of time spent on the toilet and difficulty of having the bowel movement. She has advice that is probably quite common for those of you who have struggled with constipation before, and that includes eating more dietary fiber, particularly the insoluble kind, which is the kind of fiber you would find in an apple peel rather than in the flesh of an apple, and increasing your water intake. Constipation, when it's the inability to move feces from the, uh, from the body due to dryness, it's because if we are dehydrated, our body absorbs more water than usual out of the, it's called chime, C-H-Y-M-E, uh, when it's still in our digestive tract. Our body absorbs more water out of the chime to keep us hydrated. And of course, the more dehydrated the chime is, the harder it is, and thus the harder to pass. And of course, Ayurveda has already thought of this years before our research did, and that kind of constipation is probably related to vada, because vada is drying. But going to the bathroom should take you a certain amount of time anyway, and you should know that your guts are actually quite sensitive to stress and to outward influences. What do I mean by that? So it's interesting because in Ayurveda, we have the urges we should suppress and the urges we shouldn't suppress. And if you look at the lists, the urges we should suppress are a lot of things that we don't suppress in North American culture. And the things we shouldn't suppress are things we do, which include crying and uh, passing gas and urination and bowel movements, etc., And so we have this cultural suppression. Women feel it, I think, in particular, because we're supposed to be hermetically sealed units that never sweat or menstruate or need to go to the bathroom and definitely don't make noise when we go to the bathroom. But your guts are very socially sensitive. So if you need to pass gas or have a bowel movement, your guts actually pass a micro amount of material into the rectum uh, to see if it's safe to do so. And if you think about this, I think we've all had that experience of like just a little something shifting. And of course, most of us have that moment of, nope, not the right moment. I'm in a meeting or I'm on a date or I'm just somewhere in public. And that's difficult because not expelled gas is really, really uncomfortable. Anyone who's worn an overly tight outfit for a long period of time knows that. The problem is that we don't then give ourselves time to find safe spaces 
to pass gas and to pass a bowel movement. And so when you land in the bathroom, you should be creating the kind of conditions you can for safe space, for supportive space, just like we do in yoga classes. If you've ever had a student fart in your class, you should consider that a compliment because it means that the atmosphere you're creating is creating the conditions where people can move from that fight, flight, or freeze aspect of the nervous system to the rest and digest aspect of the nervous system. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, briefly, our nervous systems have, of course, multiple components and multiple states. When we are stressed out, when we need to move quickly, think quickly, we're in this uh, fight, flight, or freeze mode. Blood gets shunted away from our core into our musculature. We get a dump of adrenaline and cortisol which are stress hormones that help us stay alert and react faster. It's because your body's always more concerned with survival than digestion, right? If you need to run away from something, it's not the time to have a bowel movement. If that thing is your inbox, then that's where yoga and meditation enter. Really, I think that's a large component as to why they're so popular is that the stress of modern life is so much more cerebral for many of us, not for all of us. It's more cerebral than it is physical. And so we need these practices that can help us calm down the effect of the cerebral living so that our bodies can function optimally. So when we calm down, when we downregulate, blood returns to the digestive tract and we are better able to digest our food and pass gas. Hence, the farts in your yoga class are a compliment because you're helping people calm down. But you as an individual, if you are going into the bathroom and you are taking your phone with you and you're scrolling through Facebook and you're seeing the good time that everyone else is having or how well slept some of your friends without kids are, (laughs) then that might elevate your stress. If you're looking at your inbox and you're seeing something upsetting or not seeing something that you want to see, that could elevate your stress. The bathroom should be a phone-free place. Like any musculature, it takes time for you to evolve its ability. So in the same way that if you decided, I want to work on hip mobility, I'm going to do this or that exercise, you would integrate it into your on-the-mat routine You would be patient with yourself. You would breathe consciously. You would work mindfully with it. And over a period of time, you would see likely an increase in your hip mobility. Same, same with your bowel mobility. You need to go into the bathroom. You need to treat it as meditative, breathe calmly, and give yourself some time. So even if you're beginning this practice and nothing is moving, that's okay. Give yourself some runway. This is critical stuff for happiness. In that book I mentioned, Gut by Julia Enders, 
she talks about how people with irritable bowel syndrome are often recommended antidepressants because it turns out that antidepressants help irritable bowel syndrome. And doctors actually do not know why they haven't come up with a clear answer. Apparently, it's been thought that antidepressants work due to an enhancing effect of the so-called happiness hormone serotonin. But there's an increase in research and interest in the gut-brain connection. And this is directly from Julia's book. More recently, depression researchers have also begun investigating another possibility, that such drugs may increase the plasticity of the nerves. Neuroplasticity is the nerve's ability to change. It is nerve plasticity that makes puberty such a confusing time for an adolescent brain. So much is still being molded into shape. The possibilities are endless, and nerves are constantly firing off messages in all directions in the prepubescent brain. This process is not complete until we reach the age of about 25. One of my sassier teachers once mentioned that this is why we should not smoke any marijuana until the age of 25, if we're going to do so. Continuing on from Julia. After that, nerves react according to a well-rehearsed pattern. Patterns that have proved useful in the past are retained. Others are rejected as failures. This explains the disappearance not only of the inexplicable fits of laughter and temper tantrums of the teenage years, but also of the posters plastering the bedroom walls. After this age, we find it more difficult to deal with sudden change, but the payback is a more stable, calmer disposition. This can also result in negative thought patterns taking root, such as I am worthless or everything I do goes wrong. The nervous messages from a worried gut can also become embedded in a person's mind. If it is the case that antidepressants increase neuroplasticity, they may work by loosening up such negative thought patterns. This is most beneficial when accompanied by effective psychotherapy to help patients resist slipping back into old habits. You can see why a yoga practice, regardless of whether it includes a squat or not, may be beneficial for someone's ability to poop well. Speaking of squatting for pooping well, one of my favorite things to share in class is uh, the etymology of the word malasana, which for those of you who are not familiar with the word malasana, it's the yoga squat. It's the knees wide, toes open, elbows to the insides of your knees, hands in prayer position, shape. Now, most people recognize this shape or possibly recognize this shape as the way that a large portion of the world works. You know, there are lots of people who squat to do handiwork, to cook, and of course, to defecate. And it's said that this shape aligns the organs of the digestive column and then compresses the sides of the body so that it takes less effort to pass a bowel movement. Whereas the thrones that we sit on in the bathroom, they do not offer us that particular stacking of the colon. And so we have to rely more on the pelvic floor muscles to strain and pass the bowel movement, which is of particular interest to pretty much 
every adult because you know someone with hemorrhoids. Not less than 50% of adult Americans have hemorrhoids, which are the result, possibly, of overstraining while going to the bathroom. So before we talk about that a little more, back to malasana. So mala is, uh, M-A-L-A, is the word for the necklace that lots of yogis wear. And it's not just the necklace that you wear to let people know you're a spiritual person or someone who practices yoga. They're used actually much like rosaries for japa mantra or the repetition of a mantra for meditation. So you could hold it in your hand simply for the weightiness of it to help ground your meditation. Some people are interested in the particular qualities of the material that make the mala to invite those qualities into your meditation. So I often think of, I have a sandalwood mala and sandalwood is calming and cooling, which is good for pitta. But you can also pass your way around the bead. So you would hold one bead, recite your mantra, switch to the next bead and navigate the entire mala uh, and skip the guru bead because we don't count the guru bead. And so mala is garland. And so the squat pose is often thought of as garland pose. But if you look at the definition of Ayurveda, spasta, health, it actually says that balanced malas are a critical component of spasta, of health. Malas are excretions. Menstruation, sweat, urination, defecation, all of those things are malas. So a critical component to your health is balanced elimination. So malasana is garland pose, but it's also excrement pose. And in a previously prudish world, that was bad marketing but not anymore because we're increasingly confident about the importance of good poops. So now we know malasana, yoga squat, poop pose. The squatting position has been touted as something that will help you poop with ease. And so you may be familiar with the squatty potty. The squatty potty is an invention of a gentleman from down in Utah when he realized that his mom was suffering because she had consistent constipation. And so she had been using little step stools close to the toilet to elevate her feet. And he thought, I can make you something that fits better and takes up less space in the bathroom. So the Squatty Potty and its knockoffs are a stool that have a curve shape into the, into the top. So it fits around your toilet. And so your feet are elevated. So it's not a true squat. You're not stepping up onto it, but it raises your feet, which raises your knees, which gives you the ability to externally rotate your legs a little more. And there's just a little bit more compression. The theory is that this position again, stacks the organs of your rectum and colon for easier elimination and with gravity. And anyone who's had a baby knows that similar positions are often used around the world and increasingly in North America for, uh, for vaginal delivery, for getting babies out. 
some women, they have uh, birthing stools similar for squatting, or they have silks coming out of the ceiling so that women can hold on to them and squat and we can use gravity and the stacking of the reproductive organs to bring the baby out. There hasn't been a lot of research, but there has been some research, including one small study in the States that looked at 85 people, and they looked at whether the elevation of seven inches or the elevation of two inches made a difference in people's ability to pass a bowel movement. And they confirmed that seven inches uh, was superior to two inches. And while there's not a lot of research, gastroenterologists consistently recommend to people that they elevate their feet with phone books or stools. And so even if it hasn't been researched anecdotally, there's a lot of evidence that elevating your feet helps. Now, if you're pooping well, you don't need to necessarily go out and get a squatty potty, but particularly if you've had a baby, you may want to think about it. Both men and women have pelvic floor muscles. But for women, the pelvic floor muscles obviously help contain the organs at the bottom of the body, at the bottom of the the torso. And you have your bladder, which sits over the pelvic floor and then passes urine through the urethra. You have the uterus, which passes uh, menstrual blood and perhaps a baby through the vagina. And then you have uh, the colon, uh, which then passes fecal matter through the anus. Once you are pregnant, your pelvic floor has to stretch to accommodate the growth of the fetus. So pregnancy itself can cause lots of challenges with constipation and problematized bowel movements. Once you have the baby, labor can cause a lot of damage here. And as much as musculature evolves and mobility and movement and ease and flexibility, etc., cetera, uh, can all be talked about in micro ways in cellular anatomy, macro damage is very, very real. And so that's where pelvic floor physiotherapists come in, because often what happens is once a woman has had a baby... If the pelvic floor is unable to regain not just its strength, but its positioning, then complications can arise. So a woman's uterus can ultimately sit outside the body. If things have overly stretched, uteruses can prolapse down into the vagina, which causes the colon and the uterus, or pardon me, the bladder to relocate, causing problems with incontinence. And ultimately, if you've had multiple babies or multiple strenuous labors later in life, this can require surgery and surgeons actually go in and stitch your organs higher up to keep them from prolapsing down into the vagina. But after babies, it can also mean that the muscles are not strong enough and not positioned properly enough to pass feces from the body. And so they accumulate causing constipation and causing discomfort. And some women find it even impossible to get them out. Now, it's not that men don't experience this as well. Men do experience this. And so pelvic floor issues, uh, you can go see a physiotherapist for them, whether you're a man or a woman. And pelvic floor physios 
they're often concerned with incomplete bowel movements. So even if you are able to pass a bowel movement, if you're a woman, sometimes women will reach into their body uh, through the vagina and then press down to continue expelling the bowel movement. That would be considered a concern from a pelvic floor physio. You would want to do some work to be able to complete the bowel movement without intervention. And from men, it would be if they press on the perineum, the space between the testicles and the anus to expel a bowel movement or even reach into their body to pull them out. So it's something that concerns uh, everyone and that the squatty potty may help with because even women who manage to regain the resilience of their pelvic floor, we don't want to overstrain. So as much as a proper diet and proper hydration and proper exercise is all very important, perhaps you want to add a squatty potty to your routine so that we don't overstrain the muscles in the future. Before you go buy your squatty potty, I will leave you with two pieces of advice that are practical from the yoga and Ayurveda canon. The first is Viparita Karani. Viparita Karani is uh, the legs up the wall pose. So the shape where you scoot your hips as close to the baseboard as you can and elevate your legs while lying down on the floor. In yoga classes, we often do this as placing a block or a bolster underneath the pelvis, just above the tailbone to help support the back while the legs are lifted so that they can stay elevated without the use of abdominal strength or hamstring strength. Viparita Karani does not mean legs up the wall. Viparita is the opposite or inverse. Karani, K-A-R-A-N-I, shares the same root as karma and kriya it's doing or action. So it's the inversion or the opposite of action. Elevating your feet is, there's evidence that it improves digestion, but it also helps you do less, which helps you calm down. And reducing stress, as we talked about, will help you with your bowel movements. Also, Ayurveda has a vital point therapy system of marma points. For those of you who are familiar with acupuncture and treatment of energy pathways called meridians in traditional Chinese medicine, it's similar but different. And there's a marma point in the ankle where if you rub it in a circular motion, it will stimulate a panavayu, which is the downward moving energy of the body. So the ankle bone to the outside of your ankle, you would do circular motions around that, which is why during pregnancy, we would not do that motion during our abhyanga or self-oiling practice because we don't want to stimulate a panavayu in pregnancy until the right mo moment. So when I was pregnant with Harvey and went 17 days overdue, I was doing a lot of ankle massaging in those last 17 days. So you can add some oil, you can do some massage to the ankles in a circular motion on the outside of your ankle, and that may help stimulate that downward moving energy.
thank you again for joining me for another episode. If you enjoy the work that I do and the things I have to share, consider joining me in the future. You can sign up for a newsletter at www.intelligentedge.yoga to find out when and where I am teaching. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram under the same Intelligent Edge Yoga. But other than that, namaste for now, yogis.